You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. is a licensed psychotherapist whose work with creative people has been featured on CNN, NPR, in the New York Times and LA Times, and more. He's also the author of the popular nonfiction book, Writing from the Inside Out. His mystery fiction has appeared in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine and The Strand, and is collected in From Crime to Crime. His series of award-winning mystery thrillers, the latest of which is Panic Attack, featured Daniel Rinaldi, a psychologist and trauma expert who consults with the Pittsburgh police. Recently, Dennis served as consulting producer on the Hulu TV series, The Patient. On the show, we talked about why writers procrastinate, self-worth, endlessly revising, the writer's strike, and much more. But before we bring him on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing and becoming a supporter. There are perks for supporters and any amount helps us to continue bringing the show to you. Since 1998, when Writers on Writing began broadcasting at KUCI-FM on the UC Irvine campus and later when podcasts became a thing in 2005, We've never taken a break from this volunteer effort. It's just Marie and me hosting and producing with Travis Barrett, who does the music and sound editing. Even a few dollars a month will help us to continue bringing the show to you. And now for my talk with Dennis Palumbo. Dennis, it's lovely to talk to you again. Yes, it is. I don't know how long it's been, but it's been at least as long as COVID, right? Oh, yeah, at least three years-ish? At least. At something least. like that, yeah. Um, so before I forget, I should tell our listeners that all of the episodes that you've been on, there might be three or four, are on the website, writersonwriting.com. So to go there and to look for Dennis Palumbo. But I wanted to have you on for a few reasons. I wanted to talk about your mystery series because now there's six novels. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's six. You have Writing from the Inside Out, which is an iconic book on writing that I recommend endlessly. Um, and you you are a therapist to creatives, which is interesting and unusual, I think. Um, so maybe let's start, especially for the listeners who have never met you or have never listened to the show. Talk about kind of how you found your way to mystery writing, starting with screenwriting tv i don't know well actually i would say the way i started found my way to mystery writing was when i was 10 years old and had the mumps (laughs) and my father brought me this illustrated adventures of sherlock holmes and i instantly fell in love with the genre i i just flipped and uh Throughout my career, I spent 17 years as a film and television writer. 
but throughout it, I was uh, writing mystery short stories. In fact, interesting, the same week I finally got my first TV job, which was working on a sitcom. Your listeners and viewers are way too young to remember, but it was called Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh, sure. And the same week I got the job on that show, I sold my first short story to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. So huh. that was a great week for me. And I was I very, very young. Um, but I've always loved mysteries. And even throughout my Hollywood writing career, I was always writing and selling short stories in the mystery field. But I'd always wanted to create a series character. And it wasn't until I retired from show business and began my 31 years as a therapist in private practice that about 12 or 13 years ago, I thought, well, it's about time, you know, for me to try to create a series character. And that's what I did. And that's where Daniel Rinaldi comes from. He is a uh, clinical psychologist and a trauma expert. And he specializes in dealing with people who have survived a violent crime. Uh, a kidnapping or being a teller in a bank robbery or someone who's been carjacked, but they have the residual trauma from that experience. They usually have PTSD symptoms. And so my character is a consultant to the Pittsburgh police, and he helps them dealing with the victims of violent crime. And of course, because he's an amateur sleuth, and this is a mystery series, he ends up getting much more involved in the cases uh, than the police actually want. So part of the tension in the series is his, uh, uh, let's just say, unlikely relationship with the people who've hired him at the police, uh, in the Pittsburgh police. The other reason I wanted to write it was because I wanted to write about my hometown of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I'm old enough that Pittsburgh used to be a shot in a beer town. It was a blue collar steel mill town. I mean, I worked my way through college at the University of Pittsburgh working in a steel mill. Those mills are all gone now. Pittsburgh has been transformed into a kind of white collar, uh, state of the art, digital, and certainly medical uh, uh, center of the country. And so most people have like a foot in one world and a foot in the other. You know, I was like my character, Daniel Rinaldi. I was the first to go to college. I was the first to wear a jacket and tie, to have a profession, you know, and this for a big Italian-American family was a big deal. So I brought all of those aspects of my own personal story to Daniel Rinaldi. And so that's one of the reasons I think writing the books resonates for me as much as um, apparently they resonate for readers. So why did you make him a trauma expert so that you could have him investigate what happened to these? Well, for two reasons. Uh, I'd spent five and a half years in a supervision group, years after I first got licensed run by Robert Stollero, one of the nation's trauma experts. And I just really got intrigued with the idea of trauma. And in fact, 
Bob calls where we are right now the age of trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, we're living through mass shootings, a very politically divided country, the pandemic, uh, global warming. You know, so people feel somewhat traumatized <laughs> by life. Daily. Add into that people who, you know, had a, a, a neighbor or a relative murdered or who themselves have been kidnapped or held hostage or had a home burglary. And most of the mysteries, and I've read literally hundreds of mysteries and thrillers, they rarely say much about the victim mm-hmm. and the experience of the victim and the victim's family members. It's mostly, let's go get the bad guy. Right. What I wanted to do in my books is humanize the victims and my character's sense of mission which began when he and his wife were mugged coming out of a a restaurant years before the first series starts. His wife is shot and killed. He's shot, but he survives. And so Daniel Rinaldi struggles with a lot of survivor guilt. And so as he felt that his survival was the result of unearned luck. And as he says in one of the books, I've been trying to earn it ever since. And that was the beginning of his mission to work with the victims of violent crime. And as I say, because of the nature of these kinds of books, he ends up getting much more involved with the crimes um, uh, uh, than he would normally do. But the clinical work is all very legitimate. One of the things that has pleased me the most particularly because the books are written in the first person, is how many readers have said to me, for the first time, I know what goes on in a therapist's head. Mm -hmm. In in one of the books, Phantom Limb, the first three chapters is an entire therapy session Mm -hmm. with a patient. Now, at the end of that third chapter, the patient is kidnapped and my hero is knocked on the head. That doesn't (laughs) normally happen to therapists, but it's a sure cool way to start the book. So, so you knew you wanted to write a series before you started this, right? Yeah. So what about the character of Daniel? I mean, how did you, how much did you know going in? Did you spend a lot of time figuring out the character? I mean, therapist, you know that, but you're not a trauma expert. Well, the thing is, first of all, because of my work with Bob Stollero, I sort of feel like I'm a trauma expert adjacent. Uh-huh. Plus, right. I've done a ton of research. Right. Secondly, I wanted to counteract the image of uh, male therapists, which I think in the media they've become being presented as sort of predatory and uh, unscrupulous. I don't think Hannibal Lecter helped us much. <laughs> and so uh, I wanted a guy with passion and commitment. And I also wanted to sort of change the view uh, uh, of the way a therapist is, a male therapist is often conceptualized. So I made him a former amateur boxer. (laughs) Nothing about boxing. But I did a ton of research on, you know, Golden Globes and the Pan Am games. And, you know, he had a very angry, bitter, alcoholic father who was a beat cop and pushed Daniel into boxing. Mm. And so what I liked is that tough 
background, a very difficult background, and then going on to get a graduate degree, becoming a psychologist, as I said, wearing a jacket and tie, doing something his father never really understood or approved of. Mm -hmm. But it was that generational break. Right. Very similar to, to uh, people of my generation growing up in blue collar towns like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and mm -hmm. Cleveland, where they don't follow in their father's footsteps and be, you know, take the same blue collar job that their parents had and often their grandparents had. Mm. So I, I wanted that generational shift, particularly because it was a good metaphor for the shift in Pittsburgh itself, which mm. is a city in transition. I mean, mm. tremendous transition. Mm. You know, it, it, the thing that's interesting about Pittsburgh, you go downtown Pittsburgh, the urban core is filled with glass and silver buildings. Mm -hmm. cobblestone streets with the streetcar tracks still laid in the cobblestone mm -hmm. there hasn't been a streetcar in 50 years but <laughs> the tracks are still there and so you still and plus there's so many neighborhoods that i knew growing up that have become so gentrified that the families who used to live there two or three generations in the same house can no longer afford to live there mm -hmm. a bunch of venture capitalists and it people live there now right and so there's a certain tension when you go to Pittsburgh between the old timers and the the new the new people. I mean, let's face it, the the, the steel mills I worked at was JL Steel on Second Avenue. Those mills are all gone now, and there that whole area has become a trendy, you know, shops and bistros and you know, a Starbucks on every other corner. You know, it doesn't look at all like what it used to look like. So I find that tension makes Pittsburgh a character in the books. Yeah, I was going to say there's conflict right there, right? Yeah. Between the old and the new. Yeah. Hmm. So, how, but how do you find time to write with your practice? Because that, you know, you probably hear this from clients, you know, how I don't have time, I need to, you know, and yet, there's a lot of writers, successful writers who have other jobs that they want to keep like you. Yeah. Right? Talk well, about find time and how I, you I, I have a very hard time finding the time. I mean, <laughs> you mentioned there's six books in the series, but I've been writing it for about 14 years. Unlike a lot of my mystery writing colleagues who knock out a book a year and sometimes two, my Rinaldi books take three and a half to four years because I have a full-time therapy mm -hmm. practice. And so um, I, the way I look at it is writing mystery novels is my version of playing golf and it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> it's primarily, you know, I lunch, I'll, I'll write a couple of pages at lunch or I'll, you know, and then as the book starts to take shape, I'll start writing at night. And then when I start feeling it's about halfway through, I start adding weekends. <laughs> but it's really just when I can rob the time. You stop sleeping. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you, you lose a lot of sleep, particularly the last couple hundred pages of the manuscript. <laughs> you know, I always feel it's like the wagon starting to run downhill on that, you know, and going faster and faster. And so um, I find that as I'm nearing the last third of the book, more and more of my time, my private time is spent doing it, you know. Do you outline? No. 
I'm uh, I write in a way I don't re recommend to anyone. <laughs> I'm a total pantser. When I write the first sentence of each novel, I have no idea where I'm going. Um, I'm usually 100 or 200 pages in before I even know who the victim is. Mm. And certainly not before the halfway through point do I know who the bad guy is. Mm. And then I just have to constantly go back and lay in clues, set up the red herrings. One of the things my books are known for are lots of surprises and twists and turns. And you would think that's the result of thinking a lot and planning a lot. No, it's the, the result of surprising myself. I'll be going along writing and suddenly an idea will hit me. And I go, well, if it surprises me, it'll surprise the reader. So I put it in and then I go, I have to go back and lay in all this pipe so that that makes sense. So it's maybe the least efficient way a person could write a thriller, particularly a complicated one. But I'd rather write than think. Mm. And I don't mind going down cul-de-sacs. I don't mind writing 10 pages and going, nah, I don't like where this is going. Mm -hmm. Because I always get a line of dialogue or a descriptive passage that I can end up using somewhere in the book. So I never think writing's wasted. Do you, do you hit delete or do you save it somewhere, whatever you cut? I, I save stuff because I never know when I'm going to find this line helpful or this description vivid. And are you organized enough to know where you put it? Yes. I was just talking about this with another writer. It's like, yeah, I keep track of everything somewhere. And, yeah. Well, you know. I, I know where the files are and then I just have to go, now, which one did I put the description in? And then I have to go find it. Mm -hmm. But I'm also still old enough that I work with a pad next to my keyboard and I write stuff. Mm -hmm. I'll be writing along and, oh, he takes out a gun and I'll write, where did he get the gun? <laughs> you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I just flew in from Cleveland. How did he get to Cleveland? You know, I have post-it notes and, and uh, uh, sheets of paper all over me when I'm writing to remind me that I have to fill in those gaps. Do you also do anything with like Excel or is there any other, I mean, like keeping track of all the moving parts can be really a problem with a novel um, unless you just have that sort of mind where you file it and you pull it out. I mean, is that what you do? Yeah, I don't use any of those things. And I think one of the reasons is I was a screenwriter for 17 years. Mm -hmm during which time there were no computers, there was no Excel, there were no files, there were no final drafts. Everything was done on a typewriter. And so if you ask your average screenwriter who was my age, I'm 72, the movie was in your head. You just mm -hmm. made notes and kept the story in your head and made notes. And that's why God invented first drafts. <laughs> you know, you, you, my novels, I write two or three drafts of them because I all my argument about writing is writing is primarily rewriting and that I don't actually know what I've got until I've written the end on the first draft of a book. Hmm. Because someone who may in the beginning of the book seem like a minor character starts to grow. They start talking to me 
and they become more vivid and interesting as the writing goes on. So by the end of the draft, I realized I got to beef up their role earlier in the book because they turn out to be more important. So does it make you want to outline? I mean, do you have you tried to do that to cut down on the time to say write the book? I mean, have, I don't know. No, because when I was a screenwriter and I was working on contract with studios, the contract always required you to provide an outline. Mm -hmm. And I hated outlining <laughs> because I don't know what I'm going to write till I write it. And because, you know, it's a, mer a mer mercantile business, the studios go, tell me what's going to be in the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to be in the movie. And uh, I and so I remember so clearly the deal memo for my favorite year, which was the, the first screenplay I wrote that got made, the, the, the deal memo just said a kid has to keep an Errol Flynn type actor sober and uh, uh, awake enough to get to the shooting of this TV show on Saturday. Mm -hmm. That was it. They made the movie deal off of like two sentences. Wow. But by the time my movie career was winding down, by the time I was ready to retire from show business, you needed a 20 or 30 page outline. Mm -hmm. And I don't like writing, here's what I'm going to think, or here's what a character is going to do. I want to find that. To me, creativity is about discovery. And I don't mind making mistakes mm -hmm. or going in the wrong direction. Sometimes I'll be working on early, one of my earlier Rinaldi books. I was sort of under the impression that this one person was the bad guy. And about halfway through the book, I start thinking, you know, it would be more interesting as if this other person was the bad guy. <laughs> so again, I had to change it. And then I just went back and seeded in all the material that needed so that it made sense. You know, how fortunate for your clients that they have a therapist who's a writer who knows the creative process, right? Well, I think it makes me kind of uniquely qualified. I think two things are of benefit to my patients. Number one, I've been a writer since I'm 20 something. And number two, I'm retired from show business. Mm -hmm. Since most of my writers, uh, patients are TV and film writers, mm -hmm. I'm not in competition with them. I haven't written a screenplay in 30 years. So they know I'm a prose writer. And I have a few prose writers, but not very many. Primarily, I have a Hollywood based career as a therapist. And my being retired, I think, helps a lot. You know, they're not out there trying to sell a pilot while I'm out there trying to sell a pilot. So it just makes things nice and clean. But I also know exactly what their concerns are. I mean, if we're talking about writer's block or procrastination or fear of failure. I've lived through all of that stuff. I've had all of those experiences. If a, someone has anxiety because they're going to pitch to a network or to a producer. I've pitched a thousand times, so I know what that anxiety is like. Right. I also know the nomenclature. You know, when someone comes in, so I'm having second act problems. I know exactly <laughs> what they mean. And I've had a number of patients who were with previous therapists where they had to spend half the time explaining mm -hmm. what their job was sure. to a therapist who had no idea what writing was like and no idea what writing was like in Hollywood. 
So, I mean, we're in a writer's strike right now. I don't know if you can say anything about that. Um, I mean, like, how's it affecting uh, writers? Well, I can say, first of all, I'm a Guild member. You know, I'm a post, what they call a post-current member. It's sort of like emeritus, but you don't get a chair or any perks or anything like that. Um, it essentially means you're old and nobody's hiring you to write anything anymore. My patience to a person, and I think correctly, believe that the issues that led to the strike are absolutely legitimate, mm -hmm. primarily twofold. The fear about AI, which is very, very legitimate, artificial intelligence, writing the scripts. And secondly, that the streamers are not transparent in terms of residuals. Mm -hmm. And so the average writer has a much harder time making a living. Now, most of my patients are successful enough that financially the strike doesn't hurt them. You know, they're showrunners, they're directors, or they're writer-directors, you know. But the average journeyman writer, the person who used to go from being on staff on CSI to going on staff on NCIS to going on staff on a Dick Wolf show, that person was in trouble even before the strike. Mm. And now it's harder and harder for the average writer to make a living. Mm. You know, because, you know, if you if you work, for example, for Netflix and there's an eight episode series, you're committed to 40 weeks. They pay you much less than the networks do. It's absolutely exclusive. You can't work for anyone else. You can't develop a pilot for anyone else. Mm -hmm. And you never know what your residuals are because they don't tell you how the episode did. Wow. And so. That's 40 weeks of your life making much, much less money than you normally would. Plus, the studios love the idea of having a showrunner and maybe one or two other writers. Mm -hmm. When I was in television on Welcome Back, Cotter and the seven other sitcoms I worked on, we had 10 or 12 people in the room. And one of the big concerns is artificial intelligence. Because you don't need 10 or 12 people in a room. You don't even need to rent the room if mm. you're a studio. Mm. One of my patients is a high-ranking executive at HBO. And he says, I have to tell you, the thinking around here is in five years, AI writes all the scripts. Wow. And that we just hire some guild guy or woman at minimum to come in and punch up the dialogue. How can, it, how can they be any good, though? Well, because what AI actually does is plagiarize. Mm -hmm. Let's say you ask AI to write an episode of uh, NCIS. The algorithm instantly reads the last 10 years of all the scripts. And let's face it, if you're writing a procedural show, there's only so many tropes you can do. And it cobbles together from a bunch of previous scripts a reasonable representation of an episode that has turns and twists and, you know, the who the bad guy is or whatever. The dialogue usually doesn't come off very well because it's very expository. 
But one of the problems with AI is it's not actually creating anything. Hmm. It is taking one from column A, one from column B, one from column C, based on plagiarizing the work of previous writers. One of the concerns the Writers Guild has always had is, well, how do you deal with authorship? Right. How do you give someone residuals? How do you, who, you know, if, if 28 people contributed to two different little sections of the way this mystery lays out for this one particular procedural episode, who's the author? And yeah, but I mean, ha that seems impossible to figure out. Well, I know. <laughs> That's what's problematic about the model. <laughs> I'm sure that the companies would like to do something like, here's a little hunk of money, we'll put it over here. Mm -hmm. And we will distribute it evenly to any of the people whose scripts we used. And the guy that comes in or the woman that comes in and polishes the dialogue will say dialogue by that person. Because, mm -hmm. see, they're not interested in the creative contribution of an author. I mean, look what HBO Max did last month. They listed all the creators, the writer, director, all under one lump called creators. Mm-hmm. And so the contempt they have for the creative community is stark. They've always had it. But because I think they have the worst publicists in the world, I've never seen the companies during a strike action say publicly the horrible stuff they've been saying. Hmm. I don't know if you've been hearing what like Bob Iger or David no. Zagloff say, but the stuff coming out of there is it will burn them down. We'll let them bleed out. Wait till they can't pay for their apartments anymore. You know, when Bob Iger said he was disturbed by the strike, one of the uh, guild members published the reality that the average Hollywood writer now makes about $69,000 a year. Bob Iger makes $72,000 a day. Wild. So, Who's disturbed? What's yeah. disturbing? Well, don't you think, I mean, I was just thinking what needs to happen is that we all need to cancel our Netflix, our HBO Max. I mean, imagine if everybody did that or if half the population did yeah. that. Well, right? I mean, that would be ideal if we could boycott the streamers and, and, uh, I, I don't know. I really, I seriously have no idea what's going to happen. I don't think you can stop AI. I think all you can do is put as many guardrails on it as you can. Um, but certainly the actors have a very similar complaint because their images now can be digitalized, mm -hmm. you know, and, and one of the things that the companies propose to the actors that, as I understand, was one of the reasons the actors went on strike, is they wanted to be able to digitally use an image and then have it in perpetuity. Wow. I mean, it just happened, you know, yeah. five, five or six years ago, there was one of these Star Wars movies where an actor did a bunch of scenes as the governor, and then they digitally superimpose Peter Cushing's face and voice. And he's been dead, you know, since the early Star Wars movies. Mm -hmm. 
So there is nothing creatively to prevent any studio from digitally creating a face, a mm. performance. So bizarre. Well, it, you know, the Authors Guild is going through this right now with the written word mm -hmm. you know, to figure this out. Like, how does this apply to books, right? Absolutely. And it's already happened with audiobooks. There was an audiobook that came out, uh, I think, two months ago, three months ago, that was ostensibly narrated by Edward Herman. And he's been dead for 10 years, but hmm. they had a digital blueprint of his voice. And uh, I think it's Amazon. I could be wrong. could be Audible. One of these companies says that they would like in the future to digitalize all audiobooks. They would like AI to, you know, to do the voice, uh, read all the books. And so all the audio actors are going to be in trouble. But I, I think, you know, the problem with technology is once it's here, once the genie's out of the bottle, right. it's very hard to put it back in. So I don't exactly know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Well, back to... <laughs> Back to writers, do you do you find that problems, I mean, a, apart from like guild strike um, problems going on right now, do you find that writers in all genres have kind of the same problems with writing or are, yeah. are we different? No, I think the problems writers have fall into sort of a broad category in the term, in sense of uh, writer's blocks, procrastination, fear of failure, anxiety, depression, um, and loneliness, the solitude, you know, the, they, they fall into these broad-based categories. The problem is everyone's issue is inextricably bound up in their personal issues. And so if you're struggling with writer's block, for example, your issues around that block would be very different from another patient of mine who is also blocked, but for very different reasons. You may come from a family where you were not supposed to shine, or maybe only the boys in your family were supposed to shine. Mm -hmm. And so it would be considered self-aggrandizing and uh, egocentric and narcissistic. I, so many of the women writers in my practice struggle with being allowed to be proactive and ambitious. It's better now. But when I started 30 years ago, this was a very big issue. Hmm. Meanwhile, the guy over here who's struggling with uh, uh, writer's block may have been overly criticized as a kid. And so he doesn't think anything he does is good. Hmm. And I'll often hear someone say, yeah, I bet Stephen King doesn't get blocked. <laughs> or if this story were really good, I wouldn't be blocked. Right. Or maybe this means I shouldn't be a writer. You know, so the meaning we give to a block usually causes us a lot more trouble emotionally than the block itself. Mm. I got blocked all every book I've written, I get blocked. But I just assume that's because writing's hard. So what do you do? I mean, what happens? How does it manifest? And then well, what, what it doesn't do is give me any sense of meaning that there's something wrong with me or the story. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I've been doing this so long that I realized, number one, a block is because writing is hard. And number two, I've been blocked a hundred times before, and I've always worked my way through it. Mm -hmm. Therefore, sooner or later, I will work my way through this one too. I'll mm -hmm. make many false starts, but sooner or later, I will. Mm -hmm. I have a rule of thumb for me that I've had since I was a screenwriter is that it won't leave my desk bad. <laughs> you may not like it, but as far as I'm concerned, I think it works. Yeah. And I'm willing to do 15 drafts of us. When I was a screener, I'd write 15 drafts to right. get it right. You know, that's, you know, you would think that writers would be more into revising now that we have computers and it's easy, right? I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a good idea just to constantly edit the same piece without rewriting. Yeah. But you know, a lot of writers want to do a draft or two or three, and it's ready to send out. Yeah. And I I don't get that. Now, as I've said to many of my patients, and I've said in hundreds of interviews, I'm very blue collar when it comes to writing. I think it's a craft. I think if you're talented, it helps, but it's a craft. And to get good at something, you have to do a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so if you like writing, you usually like rewriting mm. and revising and, oh, maybe I'll try this. Maybe I'll try this where you're, you're, I think your goal should be to love the process, not the end result. Mm. You know, I, I feel more alive when I'm writing something in the process of the writing. Right. Cause I've noticed over the years, you know, eight months later when the galleys come back, it just looks like a cold piece of meat to me. I'm not in it anymore. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. way I was in the weeds of it when it was in early drafts. Yeah. The important thing to remember that that for as a therapist who works with writers is while there's broad categories, for example, procrastination, broadly speaking, is usually a fear of shameful self-exposure. I was just about to ask you that. I was looking at a note. Yes, please. Yeah, say. because one of the things that writers need is hubris. You know, uh, as as the, the TV writer Chris Brancato once said, writers are egomaniacs with low self-esteem. <laughs> and I've always loved that description. <laughs> and as Goethe said, you have to have the hubris to believe the world can't get on without what you're writing. That's how hard writing is. Right. The other side of that hubris is shame. The mm -hmm. fear that you're going to botch it. The fear that you're not who you think you are. And you're your own cheerleader at times when you mostly are pulling your hair out. <laughs> and so if you think about why do people procrastinate, it's because sooner or later, someone's going to have to read this. Right. Even if it's just you. And then you're going to find out, is it good? Do I think it's good? Does anyone else think it's good? But yeah. here's the thing. You can always find somebody to tell you it's good. I think it becomes hard to find people who will tell you the truth, which is what's working, what isn't working, right? Yeah, I think the it, it, you can always get like your, a, a relative to tell you it's good. Right. <laughs> There's also certain, you know, writers are competitive with each other. I think you have to be very, very careful about who your beta readers are. Mm -hmm. There's also readers who will tell you they don't like anything. 
<laughs> and one of the things you have to always remember when someone is you're giving your work to someone, they're looking at it through a different subjective lens than you are. Primarily, they're looking at it through the lens of how they would do it. Mm-hmm. What I think is helpful is if you're going to give your material to people, give it to four or five people. And if four or five of them all say the same thing, I think you should pay attention to it. William Goldman said, if five people tell you you're drunk, maybe you should lay down. And But if you give your work to four or five people and everybody has like a problem with a different thing, I don't know, you should take some of that with a grain of salt, you know, um, and consider who the writer is and the notes they're giving you. Right. You know, and what they read, what they watch, what they, what they watch, what they read, what they like. Right. I remember giving one of my early novels to a really nice woman and a good writer, but she writes cozy mysteries. <laughs> and all she could talk about was, oh, some of the scenes I just couldn't deal with. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, this is like a psychological thriller. Right. You know, and she was also very religious and she couldn't deal with anyone swearing. She said, all your policemen swear. And I go, do you know any cops? Because I do. And I trim down the way they talk. Right. And so, you know, so you have to, you know, make sure you don't, if you're writing a a psychosexual thriller, you don't (laughs) want to give it to someone who writes about puppies. (laughs) Okay, I have a question for you, actually, from someone, uh, a writer who, what ha- what about when you have to perfect that first chapter or first pages before you can go on? And I mean, it's serious. It goes on for years, a couple of years that I can't go on until I get these two, this chapter right. What is that about? Well, it's about perfectionism. Perfectionism is a um, an aspect of our character that tries to ward off shame by creating something that's bulletproof. Mm. And only if it's bulletproof are you allowed to go forward. The reality is nothing's ever bulletproof. We never finish anything. I can barely read the first couple novels in my series because I'd want to rewrite every page. We don't finish anything. We abandon it. We get it to a certain place and it's done. The idea that I have to get this chapter perfect before I can write the next chapter is a way to deal with your anxiety about writing the whole project. Mm. It's a dysfunctional way of preventing shameful self-exposure about the whole project. And that if you can make the first chapter perfect, you can then make the second chapter perfect. And the same for the third. And I, I think that's one of the ways people really trip themselves up as writers. What's the cure? <laughs> well, I, I would have to know the person. Right. The thing that's important <laughs> when you're doing therapy with writers, there is no one size fits all. Yeah. I've seen hundreds of patients in my 31 years. I'd say now thousands. And even though they all come in with procrastination and, you know, writer's block and all this, the approach to dealing with each one of them is different. Yeah. The approach would be different for right. each person. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, know about their childhood. You know, I would guess the person who needed the chapter to be perfect 
came from a family where they were criticized for how they cooked an egg, swept a corner, doubled mm -hmm. the driveway. I would ask them about how chores were done, what their parents thought about how things should be. You know, like you you put out a big dinner and your mother-in-law goes, yeah, but there's no candles in the middle. It doesn't feel romantic enough. Mm -hmm. The next dinner you make, God knows what you do at the table, but there's going to be candles. Right. That kind of mentality, if a kid witnesses that or is the victim of that, they grew up to be the person who goes, I can't write chapter two till chapter one is perfect. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I don't know why I started thinking of a chapter in writing from the inside out is um, write about dogs. Because mm -hmm. I think once I asked you, I'm like, Dennis, can I come and see you? And you're like, no, because I know you. Yeah. Like, okay. But this is the problem. You said, read, write about dogs. <laughs> and I think that had to do with feeling stuck in an idea mm -hmm. or you know, like, where do I go? Who am I? What kind of stuff am I writing? You know, what's important to me? And and that chapter was so perfect. Well, I'm glad it was helpful to you. Uh, the <laughs> thing about my writing book, Writing from the Inside Out, I have been shocked at the reception of that. <clears throat> it is read all over the world. There's a, uh, a professor at Oxford who teaches it in her composition class. Mm -hmm. It's on the recommended or required reading lists of universities all over the world. I get emails from people I've never heard of. I'm just blown away. And I think it's because <clears throat> there's not one word of advice on how to write. Right. About how to be a writer, right. how to survive the emotions of being a writer, the psychological toll of being a writer. There's not one word of advice. Of, Here's how you write a script. Here's how you write a scene. I don't do any of that. I just talk about what it is to be a writer. Yeah, there's nothing else quite like it. I recommend it all the time because of that. You know, it's like people, writers go through things, <clears throat> go through the same things musicians go through, or, you know, <laughs> it's a much different, like my husband's a musician and He'll tell me about guys who want to get up on stage and play when they don't know how, but they just want to do it. A writer would never do that. No. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's funny, too, because the book came out of my column. I had a monthly column in the Writers Guild magazine, ran for six years every month. <clears throat> and every time they did a survey of all the members, what their favorite part of the magazine was, it was always my column. But I went to a Christmas party about two or three years into my writing these monthly columns. And one of the board members came over, the Writers Guild board member came over and said, I'm one of your defenders on the board. I said, I didn't know I had attackers. He said, oh, yeah, we have board members who think we should take your column out of the magazine because we don't want the industry to know that writers have psychological struggles with writing. He said, you'll never see anything like that in the DGA magazine. Too much. I was stunned. I figured everyone assumed writers had a hard time writing. <laughs> but I love the image of board members arguing over whether it was good or bad for the image of writers to have this column. That I is thought it was funny. hilarious. That is funny. 
did you know i wanted to ask you about um introverts and extroverts mm -hmm. and how COVID affected each because I didn't mind COVID that much. I mean, I minded all the sickness around me, but I didn't mind being secluded. You know, I kind of loved it. And, and my son and husband are both kind of introverts like me and they agreed. <laughs> there was like some nice stuff. I know people, it drove nuts. Yeah. Just, you know? yes. and I think <laughs> introverts and extroverts, like did the extrovert, creative people have an easier time with COVID? Well, actually, uh, most of my patients are writers and most writers, not all, but most are introverts. And even the ones who can speak, like I'm an introvert disguised as an extrovert, mm -hmm. but I was fine with, you know, sitting in a room. You know, I, I did therapy by phone and FaceTime and Zoom. And didn't leave the house for two years. And that was fine with me. Um, most of my patients were okay with it. Unless they had family members or small children for whom it was so difficult. You know, one of the things that a writer needs is privacy and solitude. And if you're stuck home with three children... You know, they're not going to school and you're not going to an office at Warner Brothers. Right. That created more of a problem than introversion. The people who had a problem just psychologically were my patients who were more extroverted. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're writers during the day, but every night they're either bowling or they're playing golf on the weekends or they have a poker game they go to every other night. They're out. That made them crazy. You know, and they tended to be uh, the kind of entertainment writers who like um, the whole mix, being on set, you know, going out to dinner with directors, hanging out with the actors and stuff. Whereas most of my writers, they want to just live with the keyboard. Mm -hmm. And that other stuff kind of unnerves them. Mm -hmm. What else do writers worry about? We have a few minutes left. Is there like something we... <laughs> talked about that we should well i think fear of failure is mm -hmm. a very big one and comparing yourself to others right i what i mean i had an, i've been very fortunate in that i have a lot of very successful patients who've won emmys and oscars and all that stuff one of my patients won a best screenplay writing oscar a couple years ago and i congratulated him and he said yeah but I'm no Billy Wilder. Mm -hmm. wow. And my position is Billy Wilder already had that job. Mm -hmm. But I could tell, and this is true for a lot of writers in my practice, where their legacy is going to be. Mm -hmm. Is what they do important at all? And the more they understand the world, the more they go, does it even matter right. that I'm doing this while people are dying in the Ukraine or and we've got all these in, you know, MAGA people and QAnon people and mass shootings, you know. And I think it's really important for artists to recommend that to, to re remember how crucial it is to be a writer, mm -hmm. to be an artist in our culture. It's more crucial than ever before. But I think because we live in a commercial and consumer driven marketplace, 
there's a tendency to look at the bestseller lists or to look at the box office or to look at the TV ratings and feel less than. Right. I mean, there's a handful of writers who live at the top of the bestseller list. Hmm. And the rest of us don't. And coming to terms with that is very difficult. And it leads to one of the things I think is the most corrosive for writers, which is envy. Hmm. The thing we haven't talked about, and yet I think is so important. Hmm. And one of the things I've seen in my own life is if I'm really engaged on a project I'm working on, I have very little envy about what's going on out in the right. world. Right. If I'm not, and I look at the bestseller list, I go, that guy's not that good. <laughs> I can't believe he's on the bestseller list again. Guys, right. I read his last two books. Right. You know, If I'm working well, that doesn't happen. And so I often suggest to my patients that one of the best ways to dilute envy is to stay in your process. Right. But what if, I, I wonder if sometimes a writer's working on the wrong project and that's why they can't get into enough of a flow so that they don't worry about other people, you know? Because I notice when I'm working on something I'm having fun with and feel connected to, I'm not thinking about other writers and mm -hmm. their successes that are enviable you know it's interesting but when i'm working on something that i'm having no fun at then it's just like Arr. i wonder yeah. i wonder i don't know well, no i think it makes a big difference if you're working on something that you're assigned or that you you know you're doing because you need the money or whatever it's going to feel like homework due and no one likes doing homework and your mind's going to drift to boy i bet you know James Patterson never gets blocked, or I bet he has fun writing everything he writes. You know, um, I remember seeing Lee Child give a, a lecture one time at a voucher con, and I had that feeling like, God, he must be the happiest author on earth. You know, I know better, but right. it's so easy to project that. And even, I mean, even with Instagram, you know, I think I think all creative people, writers are, you know, you see writers at signings and having a wonderful time and surrounded by people and you go, all right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very tough. I really think it's very, very hard for most people to not, if you're engaged in social media, it's very hard not to be struck by envy mm -hmm. um, or to fall into like a low level depression. Certainly it's been true as all the studies have shown for teenagers right how destructive social media is because of comparison mm -hmm. all the time you know but you know if you see a picture of dick wolf and you know he's out on his yacht on lake como and you're sitting here trying to figure out how to make a little episode of something work you say to yourself i'm doing my life wrong right and i should have gone to law school but the one lesson i think every person, not just writers, but certainly creative people should know if you can take this one sentence I'm going to tell you and really know it, it'll take years off your spiritual journey and save you thousands of dollars in therapy bills. And that sentence is this, everybody thinks the party's happening somewhere else. So true. I have very famous patients who are miserable. And from the outside, you would think they have everything. Mm. 
but no matter how rich and famous you are, you still have personal issues, regrets, a spouse who you're not sure loves you anymore, a kid who tells you to jump in the lake. Everybody thinks the party's happening somewhere else. Yeah, and, that's great. And it isn't. It, it brought to mind um, a Bob Newhart video. You know that video, Stop It. Oh, yeah. You know, where it's just like, I'm going to tell you two words. <laughs> so we have that sentence in these two words. In those two words. I think it was Jim Carrey who said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous for one day. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Dennis, we're getting to the end of our time. There must be like a million things we haven't talked about, but is there anything else? We really need to touch on here because. Well, I, I think primarily I, I would say it's remembering a wonderful quote by the late author, John Gardner, who said, if you think what you do isn't important, you're right. And everything in your environment as a human, as a writer, as a person mitigates against the feeling that you, what you're doing is important. Mm -hmm. And see, I think whether you write little haikus or five volume biographies, it's important. Mm -hmm. There's a woman whose name always escapes me, so I very much apologize. But she described writing as a giant lake. And she said, there are some huge rivers pouring into that lake. There's Shakespeare, there's Tolstoy, there's Faulkner's. She said, the rest of us are all these little tributaries <laughs> emptying into the lake. And it doesn't matter whether you're a river or a tributary, only the lake matters. Mm. And I use that for myself sometimes. Every time I think, Christ, the world doesn't need another mystery novel. Well, apparently I need to write this one. Right. So this is my tributary into the lake. Right. That's great. It's another one. And there's one more that I think of that you that you came up with. And that was um, wait, wait until the world wants what you have or what what is that? Get, keep giving them you until you is what they want. Right. <laughs> and that to me is my motto. Yeah. Giving them you until you is what they want. That's a good note to end on. Thank you so much again. Well, thank you so much for having me, Barbara. It's so nice to see you again. Great fun. Thanks to all of you for loving books and taking the time to listen. And a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped to make this show possible. Thank you to Travis Barrett, who does our music and sound editing and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire@earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair. Mm -hmm.